Amen. A German mother was asking a famous violinist to teach her son the art of the violin. And he said, well, I think I can do that for you. Depends on his experience. And she says, well, what do you mean by that? He says, has anyone else ever instructed him? And she says, well, what does that matter? He says, it matters a lot. If he has had instruction before, it's $10 per session. And if he has not had instruction before, it's only five. And she said, well, what in the world is the big difference? He said, well, when others, I found when others have had instruction, I have to unlearn what they've learned so that they can know what I need them to know. And so the first five dollars goes to the unlearning and the second five to the learning. I think this explains much of the spiritual problems we have in our lives and in our world today. Many of you have, and I have talked with you, many of you came to Christ when you were older in life. And now much of what you're doing is unlearning what you spent time learning in your life as a, as a non-believer. Or uh, some have told me that, that you have not sat under good teaching and preaching, and so you have to unlearn the unbiblical cliches that you have picked up over the years. And so the, the fact of the matter is we have to unlearn what we have been taught and replace it with the truth of Scripture. Jesus is working in the hearts of his disciples, and at the same time, he loves the Pharisees enough to work on their hearts too. We are just coming off of the parable of the unjust steward where Jesus is dealing with riches. That parable was specifically for his disciples, but we're going to find out that the Pharisees also heard this. See, my question this morning is, is not so much, are we willing just to learn what God would have us? My, my question is, are we willing to change at the level necessary for lasting change to take place? You know, the best our world can do is really behavior modification. Just change what you're doing. And that lasts for a little while. But the only way for lasting change to take place is for the heart, the inner man, to change, and that's a work of God. That is, that is God's work, and he does that through his word. See, the Pharisees continue to refuse to listen to God's instruction. And so Jesus is going to address these important problems in many of our lives, not just the Pharisees' lives, there are many of our lives, and he does, he does so right after the Pharisees criticize him. We're going to look at verse 14, first of all, with the criticism of the Pharisees. And Luke writes, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard these things, and they derided Jesus. Well, they heard that parable too, and they begin to criticize him. The Pharisees are there, and they're just sticking their nose up. And Can you believe this guy? Can you believe what he's saying? See, Luke tells us they were lovers of money. This is in violation of 1 Timothy 6.10, which tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
Now, some people make the mistake and say that money is evil. Money is money. It's the love of money that is evil. And the Pharisees had that. And so because they loved money, they went after Jesus and derided him. That word derided literally means to turn their nose at or to sneer at contemptuously. See, I think they related very well to this unjust steward. I think they related very well to this man. In fact, they probably had some war stories of their own and how they were able to, to swindle a few, to get a few extra coins in their pocket. David Garland says that the Pharisees believed that money was a sign of God's favor and a rightful reward for right conduct. That was how they thought. God's blessing me with all this money. And I know that I'm righteous because look at, look at my bank account. Well, I hope we're wiser than that. Because we know that there are some bank accounts out there filled with evil money. John MacArthur says the Pharisees had a zeal for the idea of God, but zeal divorced from knowledge of the truth is useless. You want to know one one of the reasons our country is the way that it is? We have a zeal for the idea of God, but we do not know him. We have pews filled with people who come in with a moralistic tendency, but they're not right with God. Jesus will later condemn these Pharisees in Matthew 23, 14, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you receive greater condemnation. Those who were supposed to be protected by the Pharisees, the widows, now the Pharisees devoured their houses, ate them up, took everything they could get from them. They really never do get the perspective of God's perspective on wealth. And I believe this is why Paul, just before his execution, so boldly admonishes Timothy about money in 2 Timothy 3.12, where he says, In the last days, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Warning Timothy, there is a real danger there. See, ultimately, there are only two choices when it comes to God's word. You will either obey it, or you will reject it. It's just those two choices. And it's not just saying, well, I agree with it. Look, there are a lot of people who agree with the Bible who reject it. Yes, I agree there's a God, but I'm not going to submit to him. Well, then you haven't obeyed. So you will either obey God's word or you will reject it. God does not want your acknowledgement. God is after your allegiance. See, the reality is, you may go, life may go well with you for a little while if you reject God. But in the long run, it will all fall apart. You and I are not designed to go through life apart from God. We're just not designed that way. And so why is it that you see men and women who have these great places of power, great wealth, great influence, great popularity, and they're woefully miserable? They're going through life apart from that most important relationship with God. See, eventually rebellion towards God costs us joy, happiness, contentment, and a life of blessing. It costs us. 
So we've seen the criticism already of the Pharisees, but Jesus is going to skillfully turn their, uh, their, their criticism to show the contrast between the Pharisees and what God is after. In verse 15, Jesus says these words, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He calls them out on the carpet, exposing their ugly hearts before the people. And with one simple sentence, he gives them a scathing rebuke. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Can you imagine being a Pharisee in that setting? Someone who was considered righteous in his own eyes, which is a problem, and also the eyes of the people. And here is Jesus saying, all that work you're doing, God knows. And the connotation here is, you don't measure up. You don't have righteousness. See, the, the Pharisees declaring themselves, saying justify, they, they justify themselves before men. It's them, they, they're declaring themselves righteous in the human arena. They're walking around saying, I'm the standard that you need, you need to be like me. Let me, just, let me just give you a little uh, rule here, a principle from the Bible. Anytime someone says, be like me, you're dealing with a hypocrite. Because there's no one who lives up to their own, the own law that they even write on their own heart, Paul says in Romans chapter 2. You don't need to be like me, church. We, we got enough of me walking around, me and my mess. You need to be like Jesus Christ. And that is where you need to be looking. I don't want you to be like me. I only want you to follow me as I follow Christ. Don't look at me. Look beyond me to the one who leads. The Pharisees would never have been able to say that because they lived in the human arena. They, this is where they made their home. And I will say, in our pluralistic and secular society, there is no room for God anymore. He's been pushed out. My dad tells me stories of praying in public school. Some of you have similar stories of that. I went to, to school, and, and we weren't even really allowed to talk about God. We, were, you know, we mentioned his name, but no one was really bold enough to, to speak it. I remember in high school, sitting in, in my study hall, reading my Bible, making my notes, and the study hall teacher didn't know what to do with it. And, and I, I was prepared. I knew I could have my Bible. I knew. And they, they didn't know what to do with me. But that is how far we had come in, in just the, the 25, 30 years from, from my dad to me. And now look at the school system and what we have done. Why is that? We have pushed God so far out. We said, no, we don't want anything to do with you. Now we have no idea what bathroom we're allowed to use. We don't even know what pronoun to call the students. We, we don't understand basic biology anymore. We have confused everything. This is also why the world can't answer certain basic questions, not just about biology, but they also can't answer questions that are, that are more complex, like 
the, the mental health issue right now of depression, anxiety, what to do with the suicide epidemic right now. They can't answer those questions. Why? They've divorced life from God. And you take God out of the equation and you are a hopeless, fearless mess who thinks there's no reason to live. And so why would you want to live in that kind of a world? And so when people look around and they, and they say, well, why are people going out and taking their own life? Well, they're taking your worldview to the ultimate end. If everything really doesn't matter and there's really no rules, then why live? And so we Christians have to be able to speak up and give hope that apart from God, that's where you end. But with God, there's nothing you cannot face. If God is with us or God is for us, who can stand against? But see, the Pharisees lived in this human arena, and they were the bullies. And the human arena has some bullies, always. There's always a bully in the human arena. And we've been hearing their voices for quite a while. They're getting more bold. We have to become bold as well. Jesus contrasts the focus of the Pharisees with this human arena and says, God looks to your heart. See, th- this concern is also seen in Luke t- ten twenty nine, right before Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Jesus gives you know, the greatest commandment. And, and then the Pharisee wanting to justify himself, same idea here, make sure I'm righteous in my right understanding. Well, who's my neighbor? Do I have to love the rotten Samaritans? And Jesus makes a Samaritan the star of the parable. Do I have to love the Gentiles? See, they wanted to justify themselves only in the way they wanted to live. See, what the Pharisees and others like them could not understand is they already had their reward. When you live in the human arena, you get your reward in the human arena. And by the way, that reward lasts for a very, very short amount of time. Even if it lasts from the time you're born to the time you die, that's it. It doesn't go beyond that. But I have seen that it lasts much shorter than that. You know, there's a real truth to the 15 minutes of fame. There's some real truth to that. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 2, that when people seek glory from men, that's their reward. But men are fickle. They are fickle. And they can turn on you in a, in a heartbeat. See, the root cause of having a heart like this that's focused on the human arena is a heart of pride. They think themselves better than others. They don't see themselves properly. The curse of sin has poisoned their heart. I love the way Proverbs 16.5 puts it. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. Wow. What a thought. See, the the Pharisees craved to be popular in the world's arena. And what do you see happening today? Everyone who's had a little taste of that power and success and popularity and riches, what do they want? More. It's like a drug that they can't get off of. And no matter how much they have, they cannot get enough. But Jesus makes it clear, you can only serve one master. And there is only one master that will lead you into righteousness, 
all other masters will destroy you. And so we have to remember that. Jesus then turns and he lays down this rebuke to the Pharisees that God knows their heart. This is an important theological statement. We're going to spend some time here discussing what that means. Because I think too often we talk about, well, the heart, and then we just move right on. What is the heart? The heart is, the, the, we would call it the seat of the emotions, but it's, it's also the, where the motivations come from. It's your desires. It's what causes us to, to respond a certain way. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You ever had a moment where you say something, you think, well, where'd that come from? Well, that was just in a closet in your heart somewhere, and it just decided to come out. See, what, what we have to recognize is the problems that we see with ourselves do not belong out here. Your spouse cannot make you sin. Let me say that again. Your spouse cannot make you sin. You respond sinfully towards your spouse. Why? Because of what's in here. And, and you know what I find as a counselor is most of the time that people get, in, get themselves into trouble is it's because they inconvenience each other. Don't make my life hard. Don't, don't make my life a little more complicated. You, you need to make my life as easy as possible. And you doing that just drives me crazy, and so now I'm going to come and I'm going to respond in anger. Sound familiar? Sounds familiar to me. Because I find myself doing it all the time. Don't make my life hard. Parents, your children cannot make you sin. Oh, they can push buttons. But you are the one that responds. And why is it that when we lose our cool and we yell... Why is it that we look to them and say, you made me do that? Well, because it's easy to pass the blame. We're, we like to blame shift. And, and I'll, I'll even sometimes think to myself, if they would just obey, well, you know what? We could say that about anybody. God could have said that to us. If you would just obey. But see, children's hearts, they're hard. They need trained, they need shepherded, they need, they need guided. We have to be careful how we do that. Children, your parents cannot make you sin. Now, I, I, you know, I understand. I, I, I was a kid once, and I remember looking at my parents thinking, these people are aliens. Okay? <laughs> there is no way that they were a kid one time because they are the most boring people. They always say no, right? And, and I would get into fights over silly things because I just, just could not believe my parents were, had the response they had. Kids, parents can't make you sin. And that goes for bosses and employees, that goes for neighbors, that goes for pastors, that goes for anyone in church. No one makes you sin. Sin is a choice that is made in the desires of your heart to get what you want. 
And that's what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus says, God knows your heart. He knows what's in there. And so there is no, whoops, that was just a boo-boo. That was a mistake. No, when we sin, that is an intentional act against a holy God that deserves condemnation. And so when we look at life and we try to reduce it down to little bits of, well, that's just okay, what we do is we take a radically different approach towards sin than God does. And usually here's how it works. We'll judge ourselves based upon what we intended. But we'll, basically, we'll judge everyone else based upon what they do. And so my judgment on you is harsher than it is on myself, and that is the very rock bed of hypocrisy. And so we have to recognize that in our hearts, that's where the sin comes from. I want you to, to recognize that when Jesus says God knows your hearts, that word knows means to know every little detail intimately. He knows every nook and cranny. He knows the skeletons in your, in your closet. He knows the cobwebs by name. He's got it all. And so therefore, he is the only one who is able to judge you properly because he knows you properly. 1 Samuel 16, 7 we learn that the Lord does not see as man sees, for the man looks at the outward appearance, right? We do. But, man, but God looks at the heart. At the end of his life, David gave this counsel to Solomon. The Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the thoughts. Not your words, not just your words, not just your actions, but your thoughts. I mean, we're going to stand before God and we're going to have to answer for everything we think. Well, that's, a, that's a scary thought right there. So recognize when something comes into your mind, it had better be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. But see, when we let those thoughts run, it's coming from our heart, what we desire, what we want. See, we tend to think that we get away with things just because we don't get caught. I ran into, we were at the Jaga County Fair on Thursday, we ran into my brother and one of his friends, and, and we've known this family for years and years, and when, uh, when he was about 10, uh, this, this, this friend of my brother's, we were camping with his family, and we're sitting around the campfire, we're just talking about life, and talking about right and wrong, and this little guy, uh, he's not so little anymore, he's a big boy, uh, but when he was young, he just piped right up and said, you know what, my dad said it's not wrong if you don't get caught. <laughs> well, that's a statement right there. Now, of course, his dad turned about uh, the shade of Donna's uh, blazer right there and was just like, oh, just let me hide and just go. And we're just like, is that true? Did you really tell him that? He's like, no, I didn't tell him that. Where did he get that from? But see, isn't that the way that most people live their life? If I don't get caught, it's not wrong. Nobody knows. God knows your heart. And he sees. He knows every little part of it. The Lord told Israel through Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart. In our scripture reading, I search the heart. I know, I test the mind. 
to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. That was a verse that comes right after the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Those were verses that were to cause Israel to fear God and judgment. But they continued in their sin, even in the midst of the Babylonian captivity. See, God is the only judge that can justify a man for eternity. The Pharisees were looking for justification in the worldly realm, the the, the arena of man. But this arena of being justified by God, now there's something to be focused on. There's the real desire. See, we read in Proverbs 21-2 that every way of a man is right in his own heart, in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. See, you and I, we're biased towards ourselves. We're biased. We, we think, we, we think we're, we're pretty good. But when we see ourselves as God sees us, that's where we come to recognize we don't measure up. Being justified before God is the only arena that counts, and the Lord has total access to your heart. You know, it's interesting to me that when these investigations take place and these companies come in and they, they're going to do a full audit of everything and they're going to blow the doors open and then there's certain people in the company that try to hide and grab documents and shred and burn and destroy so nothing's caught. You know, even in the end, if they get away with it here on earth, Jesus says what is spoken in the inner room will be shouted from the rooftops. They don't get away with it. Because God knows their heart. He knows the intention that they had. He continues, Jesus continues this rebuke, by the way, by, by saying what, what is cherished by men is an abomination to God. What is highly esteemed. This is idea of what is cherished. MacArthur says, God finds all false forms of religion exalted among men detestable. This, this word abomination refers to something that stinks and is revolting. And there is no way that these offerings are pleasing to God. That abomination is, is something that would, would have no value. It's utterly detestable. It would, it, would, it would stink like rotting flesh is the idea. But see, there's so much in our world that God considers an abomination that we celebrate anymore. I want you to notice that Jesus puts this in the present tense. And it's not just the present tense with the Pharisees. This is present tense eternal truth. It was true for Adam and Eve, for Noah, for Abraham, for Sodom and Gomorrah, for David, for the kings, for the prophets, for Israel as a whole nation, for the apostles, for the Pharisees, and for the church, and for the whole world. This is a truth for everybody, that what the world loves, the Lord hates. We have to recognize that the arena that really matters is the heavenly one where God works. God's opinion is the only one that matters. And you want to know what he says about you apart from Christ? You have fallen short of the glory of God. And you deserve eternity in hell for rebelling against my holy name. That's his opinion of all sinners. See, we, by the way, everyone has an opinion these days. And they feel the need to share it on social media. But the fact of the matter remains, 
One day, everyone's going to stand before the judge of the universe. And his verdict is the only one that will matter. Just remember this, young people. Everything you tweet, everything you post to Facebook, everything that you put on the, the, the Snapchat thing, well, there's so many of them now, you can delete it, but that was downloaded into the archives of heaven. God's got it. You know, it's amazing to me that uh, when I'm on Twitter every once in a while, I'll, I'll see a, there's a little a bit of a scandal, it seems, that someone in, in a high-ranking position says something rather controversial and they'll delete the tweet. You know, it's, what's interesting is there's always someone who's copied it and circulates it. If, if that can happen in our realm, how much more so in God's? Where nothing escapes his view. Parents, we have to be careful how we communicate our views of others to our kids, how we talk about others, because they'll pick right up on it. They'll pick right up on it. See, we're going to stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we will answer for every word, every careless word that comes out of our mouth, the Bible says. Why is that? Because God's looking at our heart. The Pharisees loved money. Oh, boy, they loved money. And that love of money corrupted them to a point where everything else was off to. Maybe for you it's not the love of money. But there's something else that your heart desires and craves. You know, I've talked to people who they, all they want, all they want in the world is to be married. And to have someone to care for them on earth. And they'll do whatever they can to get it. And that includes sometimes sin. And there are other people who all they really want is respect. And so they'll go out there and they'll start demanding it, even to the point of sin. And there are people out there who all they really want is to be cared for and loved. And they'll go out there and they'll sin to get it. Now you're saying all those things are good. All of those things are good, but the heart determines not just the end, but the means. See, if what we're doing, what we're trying to get is good, but the way we're trying to get it is not, then it becomes evil. So we have to recognize that what is, there's so much in our world that God considers an abomination, and I don't have time to go into all of them. I, I think that, just turn on the news. And just pretty much look at that and say, abomination, 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 abomination. It, that's just, I mean, if you watch the news anymore, I don't. I, don't. I don't see the need. They're not telling me anything I don't know anymore. You ever notice that? They're just not telling us anything we don't know. So we have seen the criticism of Jesus. We've seen the contrast that Jesus brings and shines that light right in the eyes of the Pharisees. And now look at the confession that Jesus makes about God to these Pharisees. He, begin, he begins this confession in verse 16, saying, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband also commits adultery. So Jesus is giving this confession. Uh, and before you lose some hair over verse 18, just... 
hang on, we're going to get there. I promise, we're going to get there. But Jesus begins this confession by using the law and the prophets. Now, the law is a law that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. And the, the prophets are the men that God raised up to proclaim the law back to the people when they forgot it. See, the law and the prophets, they go like hand in glove. And, and we're going through Isaiah in Sunday school here. And, and what you see with Isaiah, there, there's very little prophecy right now in Isaiah. What's he doing? You're sinning. You need to repent. That's all he's doing, calling out sin. Calling people back to the Lord. You get to the, to the prophecy later on in the book, but it's mostly calling out sin. Jesus says the prophets were until John. What he means by that is when he shows up on the scene in his public ministry, guess what showed up with him? The kingdom of God. Not yet consummated. It's established, but it's not yet perfect. That doesn't happen until he comes back. And Dick is dealing with that in his class in Revelation. Have you gotten to Revelation 19 yet? 19, 20, yeah, right. So we're getting there, right? All right. So, so excellent. So that's the establishment of the kingdom, the consummation. That's when it becomes final. So there's that idea of the already, not yet. The already, not yet. It's already here, but it's not yet fully established. So I want you to see that when he's making this confession, here's what he's saying. The law testifies of me, and I fulfill that law. Yesterday we had a little uh, get-together with my family, and, and they were talking about what they were reading in the Bible, and somehow the book of Leviticus came up. And, and my mom said, honestly, I've never read the book of Leviticus. She's like, everyone talks so badly about it, I just don't read it. I said, well, read it, but then it's helpful to read Leviticus like this. Christ fulfilled that on my behalf. Christ fulfilled that on my behalf. This is what Christ did on the cross for me. This is what Christ did on the cross for me. He fulfilled this. If you read Leviticus like that, I mean, it's Leviticus, so it's not the best reading, but it helps it come alive, and now there's real application for you. Christ fulfilled the law, every bit of it. But then he continues, he goes on, and, and he says, it's, it's being preached, proclaimed, you're responsible for the truth, you know better. The very first message Jesus preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he preaches that message all the way to the cross. Now it's interesting that he's calling these people to repentance, and it, he's calling everyone. But who are the ones who know they need repentance? Sinners. So what, who does that exclude? Those who don't think they need repentance. Self-righteous people like the Pharisees. Luke seven twenty nine. when the people heard Jesus, even the tax collectors justified God, meaning God is right and man is wrong, because they were, they were baptized with the baptism of John. You've got to remember, this is still in the shadow of Luke 15, 1, where the tax collectors and sinners draw near to Jesus. The Pharisees are still annoyed by that. But Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is pressing into it. That word pressing is a very strong word. It, it means military violence. Now, who's taking up guns to get into the kingdom of God? But what Jesus is doing is using a very strong analogy, meaning that a sinner, when they come to the end of themselves and they see there's nothing that they can do to please God, what do they do? 
They abandon everything and they wholeheartedly pursue salvation by faith. They are looking for that new birth. And again, we know there's nothing that we can do to be born, physically or spiritually. But the reality is this. Those who are seeking after salvation, they're the ones that God will draw to himself. Because they're the ones who know they need a savior. They've come to the end of themselves. And Jesus says, no one that comes to me, I will, not, I, will not, I will no wise cast out. If you come to Christ, he's going to bring you in. But you come empty-handed. You come on his terms and not your own. You come recognizing you have nothing to bring, and it's only to the cross that you will cling for your salvation. Jesus goes on and he says, It's easier for heaven, the heavens and the earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to cease. That word easier, it's not literal, it's a comparative, it's a, it's a Greek uh, sort of a literary device to sort of elevate the truth. It, it's Jesus is saying that heaven and earth is going to pass away before the law passes away because God's word is eternal and God's, the law is God's word. Now why is God's word eternal? Ever thought about that? Well, the answer is real simple. Because God himself is eternal. And when you get into heaven, you're going to have the Bible with you because it is his word, and his word will last forever. What God says is relevant for all time. And so the reality is Leviticus is more relevant for you, in some ways, than your news. Why? Because Leviticus was fulfilled by Christ on the cross, and it points you to what Christ has done for your salvation. Now, verse 18 is one that sends fear into many people's hearts, okay? And and when divorce is brought up in churches, we usually have two approaches. One, we're ungraciously bold, and we just knock people in the nose, right? Just pow! Take your medicine and like it. That's kind of how people approach it. Or we're so fearful to say anything, we say nothing. And people are just uncomfortable in both situations. I want you to see, by the way, that if, if you have a new King James, the scholars don't do us any service by taking verse 18 and putting a heading over top of it and separating it from its context. Because a lot of people will read verse 18 and they'll not read verses 14 through 18 altogether and they miss the point. Jesus is not coming after the everyday Joe. He's going after the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees taught that you could divorce your wife for anything. And, and if you read the, 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 the oral law, what they had on their oral law, what they said, and basically it came down to this. Your wife burns the toast, you don't like it, out she goes. Now you're talking about a first century Jewish, first century Roman society. By the way, in our day, guys, if you can't make your own toast, there's a problem, okay? <laughs> Just saying. But I see some of you over there talking and snickering. I, I just can imagine the conversations you're having with your wife right now. But in that first century Jewish and Greek society, what ended, what was, a woman had no right, no rights. She, she, had, she was completely dependent upon a man. And so if a man divorced her, she was totally destitute. She could turn to either selling her body and prostitution or begging. And both were awful circumstances. 
So I want, to, I want you to see that what Jesus is doing is he's going after the Pharisees' false understanding of divorce. Just because God gave the allowance of divorce to Moses, because, Jesus says later on, because the people's hearts were hard, does not mean you can divorce your wife for any reason you want. Is there application here? Yes, there is application here. See, Jesus does give grounds for divorce in Matthew 5.32. I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. So you have to have grounds for divorce. Now, I also understand I'm in a room with this many people. There's people here who have gone through divorce, and there's remarriage, and, and, and some people sit there and they hear this, and they go, well, what do I do if, if I'm remarried and these grounds were not met? Well, if you're remarried, here's what God wants you to do. He wants you to focus on your current spouse and love them properly. Men, lead her. Wife, submit to him. God gives grace. But if you're here and you are struggling in marriage and divorce is now on the table and it's not on these grounds, you have to know what you're doing. God calls that sin. And so you have to get the right perspective in view. Seek help. Here's what I will tell you. Most people seek help way too late. Humble yourself and seek help. And so I want you to see that there, are, there is application here but, but I want you to see that it's, it's not about going after and just charging at everyone who's been through it and just beating them down. That's not what Jesus was doing here. He was going after the Pharisees' wrong teaching on divorce. And so remember, for those who have gone through it, I've never heard anyone go through a divorce and say, I wish that on anybody. It, it's awful, it's horrible, it's hard, it's, ter- it's, it's just tough. But at the same time, we have to recognize that God gives grace. God's grace is greater than our sin, all our sin, even the sin of divorce. Secondly, you have to recognize that marriage is hard because there's two sinners involved. And if you have kids, that just exponents the problem. But God's grace is greater than your sin and everyone in your family's sin. And so I want you to see that what Jesus is doing is not coming out swinging at everyone. He's giving the Pharisees the knockout blow here that from you're justifying yourself before people all the way down to the divorcing of your wives for any reason, God knows your hearts. And you will be judged accordingly. See, Jesus confronts the Pharisees' poor understanding of him and the law and the prophets. They justified themselves, but God wouldn't justify them because he knew their hearts. In fact, here's, here's what it comes down to. They were so evil, they caused others to sin too. Because in reality, by, by divorcing and, and allowing others to divorce, they were having other people enter into sin as well. That's what they were doing. So what's the application for us? I'll, I'll give you three very quick points of application. We've covered most of them already. First of all, God looks at your, at your heart and he is not fooled by your performance. He sees what motivates us. And so we have to look at the, the, we have to ask the question, what's my life founded upon? See, there are a lot of people out there who would call themselves Christians who have founded their life on anything but the Bible. 
It's on good morals and principles. It's on, it's on the foundational principles that this country was, was founded upon, which is great. It's not going to save you. What's your life founded upon? If it's not Scripture, it will not save you. Secondly, if you don't like what you, what's, what you see coming out of you, the problem is not outside of you, it's inside of you. And God will change your heart. It is not an easy process. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes saturating yourself in God's word, putting off the old man, renewing your mind with scripture, and putting on the new man. That's the process. Second, where we seek to be justified, either before men or before God, that will ultimately determine our destiny. You know, the reality is, is who, who are, whose approval are we really seeking here? You know, Paul wrote in Galatians, do I now seek to please men or do I seek to please God? Well, this answer is pretty clear. But there are a lot of people out there who don't know how to answer that question. They just don't know how to answer it. And so we have to look at where we're seeking to be justified. You and I are not justified by our own works, by the way, but by the merit of Christ and Him alone. It's the way we're justified. We don't, we don't earn our robes of righteousness. They're graciously given to us by God because Christ has earned them on our behalf. And so we have to see that we're either going to be justified before God or we're going to be justified before men. And if we're justified before God, men are going to see us as fools. But for how long? How long? It's going to be the greatest trade-off when we get to heaven and we hear those great words, well done, good and faithful servant, and the ringing in our ears from all of our critics and all of those who think we're crazy or foolish or stupid, that's going to be silenced immediately. Third, be careful the kind of counsel that we give because we can cause others to sin in the counsel that is offered. We have to give counsel from God's word that is according to God's character. And let me end with this. Let's be a gracious people. I've been in a lot of churches where this topic of divorce comes up and there's just grace just seems to turn the faucet off with that one. No, there's grace here for you. Let's be a gracious people. Let's be kind and loving. Now let's call sin what it is, as I have done this morning. But let's also focus on where Scripture focuses. Let's give grace the way God gives it. Let's turn to the living word of God for our instruction and be led by the Holy Spirit. Let's find our life in Christ and rest in the truth that God is our Father and no man can take us from Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning and this very important passage of Scripture. I pray that our hearts would be tuned to Yours. That as we read the Scriptures and we see where we have to change and we have to grow, as we have conversations with our spouses and our friends, and our siblings and parents, that we would see there are areas we have to grow, and we would know that it is our heart that must change. And so, Father, as we come this morning, I pray that as the altar is open, if, if we have to come and, and fall before you and confess and, and, and proclaim that we must grow, I pray we would do so. May we be a humble, gracious people, fully dependent upon Christ for our salvation and upon your grace for change. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.